This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a RRR film criticism show and podcast. My name is Lisa Kovacevic um, and joining me in the cave tonight are Stuart Richards. Hi, Sally Christie. I'll turn Hello. your mic on. <laughs> and our special guest, Flick Ford. Hey, Felicity. Hello. Uh, Felicity is the secretary of the Melbourne Cinematheque and you can view her work in film philosophy, metro uh, screen education and senses of cinema. And it's your second time on the show. So welcome back. to yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back. <laughs> Um, tonight we'll be discussing the life and times of New York artists uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat, um, which is explored in Boom for Real, and the life and times of a New York fashionista, André Leontelli, um, which is explored in The Gospel According to André. And from the runways of Paris, we conclude in Paris with the farcical World War One biopic See You Up There. Uh, but first, Boom for Real, The Late Teenage Years of Jean-Michel Basquiat is a window into the life of visual artist Jean-Michel Basquiat and the city of New York during the late 70s and early 80s. A teenage Basquiat lives uh, between friends' sofas and the streets of the East Village. In a few years, his artistic vision will disrupt the elitist art scene forever. Boom for Real, however, doesn't cover the years of Basquiat's success. Instead, it offers us a window into the adolescent years of the later celebrated painter and his milieu, from politics and hip-hop to race and punk pop, sorry, punk rock. Uh, Boom For Real depicts the times, the people and the movements of the city that shape Basquiat's artistic vision. Directed and produced by Sarah Driver, Driver interviews close friends and artists who emerge from the same scene as Jean-Michel, Nan Golden, James Nares, Fab Five Freddy, Luke Sunt and Jim Jarmusch, amongst many others. Between archival film footage, music, rare images and intimate anecdotes, Boom For Real is a portrait of a crumbling city's iconic art world through Basquiat's eyes. I have a um, confession to make. I wasn't actually familiar with Basquiat going into this film and I don't think I can use my youth as an excuse, um, tongue <laughs> firmly in cheek. Um, but was everyone else here familiar with Basquiat's work? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's just yep. me who's a player. <laughs> yeah. You're not. <laughs> I, knew, like, I, I knew the the general, like the castle, I knew the general vibe of his era, mm. but the specifics of, I guess, his career and his life, I didn't uh, as much as... I feel like I should have. Don't we remember the Basquiat film where David Bowie played Warhol? Yeah. That was my introduction to him. I remember renting that film when it first came out because I was about 13 and I was in love with Courtney Love and she was in it. So I was like, okay, I've got to get this movie. So that was my introduction to Basquiat was through that film. You were so much cooler than me when you were 13. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely didn't see that film when I was 13. But I remember getting really into his artwork and then watching that film yeah. as like a little follow-up because I was like, this will tell me everything I need to know. <laughs> I thought with this doco though, the period where it started out, 1977 in New York, for me personally is one of the most exciting cultural times with everything that was going on then. They had that huge blackout that happened which ended up in all this looting and there was David Berkowitz and Son of Sam and there was just so much stuff going on in New York. We had all this incredible art coming out of it, um, which is I think when he started doing the same stuff was in around 77. Hmm. Um, so for me, I was super excited about that because I just, I love that period. I just, I love, I love it. Um, but I don't know, this doco, it kind of started, I, I felt that if I didn't have any background, maybe you can sort of weigh yeah. in with me, Lisa, how 
you felt going into it? It sort of felt to me as though I was, it came in midway through a documentary. Yeah, it did. Like I never got a grasp on who he was at all through the whole documentary. Yeah. And it's, you know, because I had no context or no mm-hmm. um, place of reference. Um, and, you know, that's uh, my own ignorance. But um, but it's not to say that like a large part of your audience wouldn't know who yeah, he is. So it's pretty... You to go it, into the doco making sure that people that don't know who your subject is can understand yeah. it Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for the whole film, I was, I was just waiting for that explanation of who this guy was and I was watching it uh, with a friend who was sort of dipping in and out of the film and they were sort of like, are you, do we know who it is yet? And I was like, no. So he's like, is he famous yet? And I'm like, no, I don't know who he is. So for the whole film it was just, he's like this sort of ghost-like hipster figure in the background of this film and I never got a good a grip on, yeah. on, who he, on who the person was. I, I liked how they kind of showed how he was playing with different mediums to kind of get get to his end point of where he did become a big successful artist mm. and we got to see that the archival footage was quite thrilling um but yeah it did feel a bit like oh, I, I guess they were using all the, the new york stuff obviously to give it some context but it didn't feel that it was successful in doing that mm. and i already do have I, I think you know quite a bit of knowledge about that particular era mm. Mm. also it's kind of interesting i mean they covered quite a lot of ground and they really brought new york at that time to life, but it wasn't almost specific enough. Like I am familiar with his work and and really a big fan, but I also was like, there's not enough of him in this film. And it was kind of, no. that's such a strange thing to say about a documentary, about a very famous a artist and be, yeah, like I don't yeah. really know this person. No, you got a lot more from the interviewee subjects like Jim Jarmusch and stuff, which I found interesting, but then I just wanted to know more about them. I actually started to care less and less about Basquiat, which is not the intention of yes. this mm. film, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I thought too that I, I loved the way that the film starts at this really low point in New York's history. Like it says violence, there's white flight, poverty um, and from that was born all this wonderful creativity that heralded in the punk era, era and a wave of you know new artists and I thought that you know they all went on to define culture and I thought that was really fascinating but there was nothing said of the gentrification of New York as well which I sort of thought that all the interview subjects that they speak to look like they're really well to do now yes, and they have yeah. the nicest lounge rooms <laughs> <laughs> set in lavish kind of um, studios and such and I sort of thought oh that's really interesting but yeah. the film doesn't really explore what no. it did to New York to the you know the, the New York that I sort of knew in my 10 years was the sex in the city New York you know so it's a really stark contrast and I would have liked to to uh, have learned a little bit more about that bridge. There's a great doco called I think it's called New York 1977 the coolest year in hell which is brilliant and it's about exactly that so mm. this point in poverty and then kind of what happens and punk and hip-hop and yeah mm. that's, that's yeah. a whole different thing. It, it's got to do with is, is it just like the commercialization of that movement basically is that kind of is that is that minimizing? I think too much. Been, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The yeah. documentary does hint at, mm. at that kind of transition slightly, where towards the end there are the exhibitions where a lot of the elite kind of figures of the art world start attending some of these exhibitions. Mm. So it does slowly kind of hint of that change that's about to happen, but it doesn't really. Yeah. And he, one of Basquiat's pieces is like them been sold for the most amount of an American artist, isn't it? Like $110.5 million or something absolutely insane like that. Mm. So it's interesting to see that he was this homeless kid and... 
then yeah. you know it's gone gone to that. And also, in a, in a world where um, black people and artists aren't celebrated, he's such an important figure, and, and yeah. uh, particularly for the black communities. And it, I just felt even that wasn't explored at all. You yeah. know, the way that he's sort of um, you know it can be a sort of a poster child for these mm. for these communities. I mean, he's a very in this documentary, he's presented as this very fleeting figure. Mm. We have mm. all of these interview subjects talking about parties they were at and all the shit they got up to. And he was just this this kind of really elegant, charismatic figure that would waft in and be really drunk and, and kind of do all of this stuff and make all this crazy art and then he'd be gone. He was like an observer, Yeah, he, he yeah. was just... And we never... It was almost as if all these people interview, interviewed didn't really know him. Mm. And so this documentary kind of just presents that figure almost... Mm. So we don't get his sort of upbringing at all. Apparently he went to a private school and then how his like... His dad was from Haiti and... Yeah, yeah none of that. And his, um, and his, <clears throat> what happened after he became successful. Mm. It's, I think it's a really interesting choice that the um, director made to make this just about his teen years because, say, we were talking about Mary Shelley last week and her life was so enormous and there was so much to it. Yeah. but. Um, unfortunately, he didn't have much life after his teen years. He died when he was 27. So, it, yeah, it is interesting that they've decided to cut it off pretty much the last seven years of his life when he became successful, where mm. it would is not that much more. It was just spot. an end note, wasn't it? it was just yeah. like, and then he became famous, and yep. then in seven years he died. It's mm. sort of what we were left with. Like, there's obviously an artistic reason for that, but I just don't feel like the film. Boom mm. for Real really explores mm. that and it doesn't really there's one moment in the film that I thought was quite creative and I really liked it and I wish there had been more of that and it's where one of the interviewees is talking about um, an installation art piece that he'd created it was like a dome and he was playing in it then there was another musician playing in it it was this mm. big stage piece and Basquiat walks in and and, um, cr- and sort of fashions his own piece to add to the piece and starts playing his clarinet with them and stuff he was a musician he sort mm. of used the world was his canvas really um, and in that retelling of that tale they kind of the filmmakers create an art sort of piece for the storytelling to go with the narrative and that was wonderful it kind of there was a David Lynch documentary uh, you know 10 years ago that premiered at MIF and that film too although problematic it's still um it sort of it borrowed from the artist that it was talking about in terms of how it um, told its story, which I thought was really great. And I and I loved that moment in this film, but the rest was pretty, I thought, average filmmaking. Yeah. I it's mean, a, it's yeah. such an artistic film. Mm. The, the score is incredible. Um, all of these sort of different sort of forms it's playing with. Yeah, I was going to say that it's kind of... Um yeah, in terms of how they um, engage with that really early years and the creative uh, energy in those communities was really interesting. I thought that was probably the strength of the documentary where it went into how that, how um, I suppose the circumstances of poverty or homelessness played into the um, need to engage with those art, art movements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and by not really focusing on the circumstances of his death at all, this Jean-Michel Basquiat that we sort of know is that person, that kind of that person at these parties at making this art and not the Jean-Michel Basquiat that sort of died of the overdose. So I think it is sort of a really interesting creative choice by not even engaging in his death in any kind of substantial way. Mm. I mean, I like, I actually thought it was an interesting approach, mm. Sally. You know how you said, oh, I don't, we didn't get any insight into his childhood or anything after. It's just this little snapshot. And I, I don't mind mm. that sort of window. It just, it wasn't enough. There needed to be some context, at least at the 
the beginning of the film just to sort of give us some sense of who he became or why this is an important film or something? I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm too um, conventional. <laughs> I don't know. Because they kept on saying that he has it. He has it. And as a viewer that... You're I like, what does he have? <laughs> what, what is it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so uninformed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was interesting though. I mean, yeah, it was interesting hearing about where how he sort of started as a street graffiti artist and it was mostly, you know, words that he was sort of using in his um, Samo um, tag, which he sort of created. And, and I, I was interesting to learn about the history of the graffiti movement at that yeah. time too, which mm. I didn't know a hell of a lot about. So that was there was some enlightening stuff there. Yeah, I think the way he played with mediums was really interesting and I, I, that's what I, I loved most about this. Mm. And I also really um, liked how it came through with just them being a community, an art community, mm. a tribe of artists that got together and went out, mm. you know, as outsiders and sort mm. of made it on their own. I thought that was communicated really well through this. Yeah, and mm. that approach to creativity was so fantastic where... So one of the interview subjects said that the, this kind of creative mind is transferable. So you're not just just a filmmaker, just a person who yeah, works in music, mm. just the person who makes art. That creative mind can transfer from different mediums and still produce wonderful content. And you can mm. see him playing with these different mediums to go okay this isn't working for me this isn't so I'm going to move on whereas mm. you know there's the thing with a lot of artists where it's like you set out and go okay I'm a musician I'm a filmmaker mm. I'm this I'm that whereas he was just going and playing with everything to see what worked yeah he was mm. doing art on fridges and on clothing yeah. and mm. on walls and it was it was fabulously creative yeah. he'd be <laughs> yeah. the worst housemate <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't get your bond back no, no way <laughs> Well, we've been discussing Boom For Real, The Late Teenage Years of Jean-Michel Basquiat, um, which is screening nationally at Good Independent Cinemas. And if you live in Melbourne, you can catch it at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Just check their website for details. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. While New York City was giving birth to an underground art scene in the late 70s, early 80s, an explosion of high fashion was also happening. Uh, while Jean-Michel was partying with underground street artists at the Mud Club, another young black American up-and-comer was partying with the Glitterati at Studio 54. Andre Leon Talley was a larger-than-life black kid from the South who, against all odds, grew up to become the American fashion editor-at-large at Vogue magazine. If you've seen the 2009 documentary, The September Issue, um, that focused on Vogue's editor-in-chief Anna Wintour, you'll remember on Andre is the camp and flamboyant black guy who sashays sashays around Vogue magazine's offices. Um, Listeners may also be familiar with Andre Leon Telly's opinionated persona as a judge on the TV show America's Next Top Model, which is (laughs) my best... Tyra Banks impersonation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, And now that Telly is the focus of his own documentary called The Gospel, according to Andre, we can see more clearly the source of his appeal and the significance of his presence in the fashion world. Telly is a walking encyclopedia of fashion history on first name terms with all the great couturiers. Um, His larger than life personality speaks for the artists and editors he works with and for. Filmmaker Kate Novak explores the life and career of Andre from his childhood in the segregated South to his iconic barrier-breaking work at Women's Wear Daily, uh, W and Vogue. Um, Felicity, how did you find this biopic? Um, well, I've just seen it now, so um, nice and fresh. Yeah, I saw it today <laughs> um, too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, big audience uh, that was seeing it. Um, mm. I I kind of had mixed feelings. I, um, I actually am not that familiar with him. I don't know that much about fashion, so I was a bit of a newbie to it. Um, the doco did make me like Anna Wintour a lot more than I did before. I mm. usually find her quite quite dull. Um, but uh, I don't know. It was kind of, I thought it was like 
it was well structured. He's an engaging, engaging subject, and I thought that it was uh, admirable that they went into a lot of the race issues that were happening at the time, and also his encyclopedic no- knowledge of fashion history is just mm, amazing. It is. Um, and the way in which it's so clear how how passionate he is about that, and and how fashion can function as this political statement. Um, but I'm still kind of on the fence. I'm still trying to work out. I'm cycling over, trying to think about what I actually felt about it. I thought, um, yeah, I have a few issues, but maybe I'll wait till everyone else has <laughs> spoken. Sally. Oh, I found this an absolute delight to watch. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was, for me, I think what I wish the Basquiat doco was a bit more of, to mm. be honest. Um I went in thinking that this would be a fashion doco, which it was, and there's so many good fashion docos happening at the moment. Um, But, yeah, that sort of... The look into the sort of race relations with this and how that's kind of played into everything and, um, you know, his upbringing, how that was explored, I did think was really, you know, admirable as well and it really heightened it for me. Um, But... I think my my favourite parts of this doco were just listening to his conversations with his friends because he's so so entertaining. There's one part where he's talking about asking his friend why he eats five hot dogs a day. I think this was my favourite bit when they were arguing about why do you eat five hot dogs, why do you eat caviar. That was brilliant. But, um, yeah, I, I did. I really enjoyed this. I had a bit of an issue with the fur stuff, but that's... Oh, yeah. Um, that, <laughs> not a discussion around fur. Yeah. That really shat me. Yeah. Uh, be- me too. Because he is such a socially conscious... I know, yeah. Uh, I, I guess sort of personality in this industry. Yeah. He pushes so hard for the representation of women of colour um, in the pages of Vogue. Mm-hmm. So he's aware. He's a smart guy. Yeah. But the entire time he's just swanning around in these giant, luxurious fur coats. Mm-hmm. And obviously from the beginning of his sort of foray into this world, that would have been real fur, without a doubt. Uh, and there's no commentary on, the, the you know, the fur he wears today, whether or not it's fake fur or, or real fur. And that just really annoyed me. Because yeah, that, that was my <coughs> one gripe. Was yeah, fur. you're positioning yourself as this really, you know, socially conscious person in the fashion industry, but you have no opinion on the fact that you are wearing fur. Um And so that really kind of, that was the first thing that I was like, oh, there's something not quite right about this film. Mm. Um, There was that. And there was another one where, I mean, obviously it does go into his upbringing and and his comments on some of the racist sort of names he was given. One of them was Queen Kong. Um, Mm, But there there was something, but it was all very superficial, I Mm. felt. It didn't really go into any... Uh, sort of substance of the fashion industry because, I mean, he's. I mean, it is kind of uh, kind of touched on where he represents so much of what the fashion industry says is not beautiful. Yeah. He's big. He's black. He's gay. Yeah. And even the word "gay" wasn't uttered until the end of the film. It's not really spoken no, about. No, it's he's almost so reserved. He seems kind to of have taboo. a big disconnect from his sexuality in yeah. a sense. There does seem mm. to be, from what I gathered from him, um, a big disconnect there. And I've seen mm. interviews with him saying that he doesn't have time for sex. It's too messy anyway. So he just and likes I'm too to focus career, on. Uh, he wants yeah. to focus on fashion. Yeah, so there is a kind of I, I did mm. feel a big disconnect. Yeah. With him there. But I, I agree with you, Stu. It do, doesn't delve deep, deep enough. It doesn't. And it doesn't show how politically conscious he was at, 
on various positions at various times yeah. in his life. Yeah. And I and I actually think this could be at the fault of the director herself because there was a moment when a conversation is taking place and he comments that he couldn't be the loud black man in Paris. Mm. And I was like, why? Mm. Like, tell us why. Mm. And it's not discussed. He says um, that when he's live blogging the inauguration, which is a, an incredible moment to film, and he says, people are going to kill me because I'm saying that Melania Trump is dressed well. Mm. Why? Mm. Like, that's a moment mm. that you have a really, like, switched-on personality commenting on the inauguration of Trump, mm. and you're not really probing at all. And then, but also the fashion industry... I mean, he talks about how he can't be that sort of outspoken person in, when he was working in Paris. And I was like, why? Like, like What happened? What yeah. happened? I think that they're assuming a literacy around him or, you know, for the, from the audience, knowing mm. all these things. But I completely agree. And I think that, that um, there's a missed opportunity as well to yeah. really um, interrogate the homophobia mm. and, and also the racism implicit. And the sizeism, like yeah. the fashion yeah, industry absolutely. and how it makes women feel about their bodies. Like, yeah, actually. Actually, that's another thing. I, 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 that's one thing that occurred to me. I was just like, it feels a tiny bit like a giant advertisement for Vogue, yeah. which has not got the best track record no. of any sort of diversity and representation. Sorry. Did Adam Winter <laughs> stage an intervention for him to lose weight in the that early was, 2000s? That was mentioned. Oh. Yeah. Actually, that's mentioned in the September issue, yeah. which is another documentary. So, which is not mentioned here, which no. is yeah. just like, ugh. It is. Yeah. It is. Okay, I dislike her again. Yeah. <laughs> she, had, she had an intervention yeah. for him to oh, stop yeah. eating so much junk See, and for him to lose weight. Oh. oh. You know, it's interesting watching this documentary in connection with the other two that we've been um, watching this week because it really put this focus on art and, you know, fashion as art and and how it could have this amazing political um, agency and currency. And I just don't associate that with Vogue and... Uh, it was kind of him as a character. Mm. I could see that, but I couldn't. I, th- I think that that was the discomfort for me, this connection, his connection to Vogue. Mm. Yeah, uh, it's interesting because f- fashion is definitely political. It's mm. definitely yeah. art. And then we saw in the Basquiat docker, I think at one point he shaved a mohawk and some whoever they were interviewing was saying, okay, he was expressing himself like, you know, with, with punk they were doing it on the outside, not just in painting, so he's doing it through clothing. So they touched on that in the Basquiat stuff, but, yeah, not so much here. Yeah, and it's, it seems like a um, a wasted opportunity, kind of like what you were saying before, Stu, about there's all these really interesting yeah, bits here that they that could just... Not touched on. I mean, mm. he did wear a giant Golden Girls cape, though. That's so awesome. That was something that I loved. <laughs> Stu tries to weave the Golden Girls into every show. That's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> well, he loves the Golden Girls. Thank you maybe, for we, maybe we should change the intro music yeah. to yeah. thank you for being a friend. I would be okay with that. I would be okay with that. <laughs> Yeah, it was a funny for me. Yeah, I just felt I actually felt because I went back and watched the September issue last night because I thought I'll oh, give me a bit of. I was trying to remember him from that um, that documentary in two thousand and nine about Vogue, um, and I actually think that as a film that although Anna Winter is is not not particularly likable, um, but as a film, it's a better film structurally because it sort yeah. of focuses around the production of um, a big issue of Vogue and then you can punctuate that with interviews around the people that make the magazine. I feel like this sort of lacks structure for me, even though it was better than um, Boom For Real, which we discussed earlier, in that it gave you um, insight into his childhood, but that was sort of the only thread. It was just that he was a poor black kid that made good and 
and I thought that that wasn't enough for mm. me. I needed to see more of his life in the in the um, fashion world. Yeah, I mean, the interview subjects, though, are pretty incredible. Uh, we've got Tom Ford, mm. Whoopi Goldberg, Marc Jacobs, Fran Leibovitz, who is fantastic. I she love needs her. to be in everything. <laughs> mm, mm. Anna Wintour, who also says that her fashion history knowledge isn't great, mm. which is a pretty big reveal, mm, I think. Mm. Manolo Blahnik, Diana von Furstenberg, Valentino, Maureen Dowd, and all of this footage of Diana Vreeland. Like, it's the, the people they're engaging with mm. is pretty incredible. Actually, I loved that comment about how he, um, starts to mimic uh, Vreeland and then you see it like yeah. when it's pointed out to you you're like oh wow because yeah. yeah he does that though and I was thinking you know what he does for Anna Wintour is you know how she loves to be the ice queen all locked up but he allows her to do that so he sort of speaks for the artists that he's working with it was the same with I was at Yves Saint Laurent or one of the mm. earlier um, uh, couturiers that he um, is, that the, is that a word? It um, is now. Yeah. <laughs> um, Courtiers? Cour- no. 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 <laughs> <laughs> one of the earlier Watching the wrong documentary. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, one of the earlier designers that he collaborates with, he, he it was this, I think it was Lagerfeld actually. Yeah. He, he sort of speaks for him in interviews and stuff. And I feel like Anna Wintour does is the same. It's like she, he's like the court jester and she's like the ice yeah. queen, you know. And that is commented on a little bit where he is this exotic, bubbly figure that they kind of want to associate with. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But it's all yeah, it's all very caricaturish in a lot of ways mm. and it, it sort of speaks to that sort of surface story that you're talking about there's no mm. for me there wasn't enough of an emotional core and whenever there was there was times where he was almost in tears talking yeah. about the racism that he yeah. suffered but the film just quickly diverts into mm. another sort of um, thing about Michelle Obama's pink dress or something you yeah. know and you're like oh I really wanted to <laughs> you know explore what that sort of um, the, the politics of it I actually found the mo- one of the most touching moments in the documentary was the uh, gospel at the towards the mm. end of the film I was really surprisingly moved by that and the way in which the rhythm of the uh, speaker's voice how well that played into she was great she was amazing I can't think of her name right now but I just thought thought that was really powerful to give a sense of like his background and where he's coming from and what's informing his choices and Mm. yeah absolutely Um, well we have been discussing the gospel according to Andre which is on limited national release Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. The next film we will be discussing is called See You Up There, or, oh, oh, who speaks French here? Au revoir. Au revoir, la heart. I don't know. Au revoir, la heart. Oh, what a shame. Anyway, um, well, it's no mean feat condensing a 600-plus page novel into 117 minutes, um, but that's exactly what director-slash-co-writer-slash-star Albert Dupontel has done in See You Up There. Um Yes, I'm gonna not going to attempt to say that again. Um, <laughs> I think it's... Oh, sh- oh, no, I'll let it go. Au revoir, la hotte. I don't know. Um, la hotte? La hotte. La ho. That sounds French. Yeah. Um, it's a tome to the ridiculousness and futility of war and set at the end of World War One, where we meet Albert Dupontel uh, in the trenches of late 1918, where weary soldiers tired of fighting, fighting are given the news that the war is ending, led by their tyrannical Lieutenant Pradel, uh, Laurent Lafitte. The men are 
force back out onto the battlefield once more for a harrowing and brutal bloodbath, leaving many men dead, maimed or mortally wounded. It's here amidst the carnage that we meet Edouard, played by Nahuel Perez-Biscayat, who you might remember from BPM if you saw that wonderful film, um, who's a gifted artist and friend. The pair managed to survive, albeit leaving Edouard's face horrifically disfigured. After Pericourt saves Maliar's life, he feels obliged to stay by his disfigured companion's side, stealing morphine to ensure his friend's survival. The disfigured Pericorp prefers his wealthy family believe him to be dead and so he takes on a new moniker and being an artist he creates a myriad of extravagant masks for himself to reflect his mood and hide his facial disfigurement. Pericot and Meliard then formulate a plan to sell phony war monuments to French towns to honour their dead. If you're not a fan of World War One biopics, never fear, as the bulk of this film follows the absurdity of Meliard and Pericot's lives as they integrate back into society following the war. With five César awards up its sleeve for Best Director, Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, Costumes and Set Design, See You Up There received a lot of praise in its home country of France and premiered here earlier this year at the Alliance Française Film Festival, but it's only getting uh, its sort of wide release here in Australia now. Um, so, Stu, how many croissants out of five do you give this one? <laughs> I'd say four. Four? That's four pretty croissants. good. I really with enjoyed jam? it. With yeah. jam? <laughs> Strawberry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really enjoyed this. Mm. I really liked how playful it was. One of my one of my all-time favourite films is A Very Long Engagement by Jean-Pierre Jeunet, who mm. directed um, Amelie. And Delicatessen. Delicatessen. And City of Lost Children. Yeah, yeah. the film also stars Audrey Tattoo, um, as well, which who was also an Amelie. And it's a very similar, I guess, subject matter. It's about World War One and someone faking their death in the battlefield. Uh, and it's about sort of the discovery of this supposedly dead identity. Uh, and but, but the actual form itself is really playful, jumping from really sombre tones to kind of comic, playful... Um, uh, sort of use of form. Um, the costumes in this film were incredible. The masks. Mm. There's one towards the end where he has this like sequined peacock mask. Incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. And the the lead one of the lead actors, uh, Noel Perret Basquiat, who was in BPM. Uh, is such a fantastic performer. Yeah, those eyes as oh, well. The way he, he yeah. smizes so much. To, to <laughs> quote, to quote, to yeah. quote Tyra Banks, <laughs> <laughs> he smizes up. But like, which is so hard to do because the mm. bottom half of his face for almost the entire film is covered, and he performs solely through his eyes. Mm. His this, eyes are deep, a deep blue, and it, <sighs> they're so well cast because you can't yeah. see half of his face. As you say, his bottom jaw is blown off, but it's not gory. You don't ever really see that. It's just covered with. Mask. Well, this is a terrible comparison to make, but uh, there was this film Tusk that you may remember. Yes, so from. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking about I've forgotten his name. His name Jason is... something. Yeah. Anyway, the main <laughs> the guy in it, the he, guy from Tusk. Yeah. Um, anyway, he he basically gets turned into a walrus. Justin he has, Long. Yes, that's it. With um, and anyway, he he has very expressive eyes, and I was thinking, oh, they've really cast him well because like as he's turning into a walrus you get all the emotion <laughs> through the eyes and this is very similar in terms of the eye play <laughs> I love the beautiful eye play. yeah yeah there's a link <laughs> but yeah beautiful eyes that you convey so much and especially with these like really elaborate masks they're amazing yeah I went into this movie knowing absolutely nothing about it apart from the title and it was so brilliant I loved it it was just I the sort of whimsical direction that it went in I was mm. not expecting and um, 
Yeah, it was really, really beautiful. I, I liked how funny it was. I was surprised to see Albert Dupardeau, who was um, also, you know, the main star as well as directing it. I have only only know him from Irreversible mm. um, all those yeah. years ago. So it was good to see him again in something that is completely not Irreversible. <laughs> <laughs> not really. more, a bit more lighthearted. That should be the tagline, certainly not. <laughs> certainly not irreversible. <laughs> and he was also in a very long engagement, which oh, this yeah, film yeah. is yeah. very similar to. Yeah, mm. I felt it just reeked of Jean-Pierre Jeunet, who, di- who, who yeah. yeah, as you've said, you does see the influence. so much influence from Amelie and st- especially, yeah, Delicatessen to the Lost Children. Um, it's very playful and, you know, probably one of the more lavish and technically dazzling war films you're going to see. Um, it's more of a romp, really. You yes. know, it's yep. quite it's quite farcical at times and stuff. I found the narrative a bit um, uh, like a maze. Like it was a bit sort of so manic. It was so mm. manic. It sort of reminded me of like an El Motivar film too. It was just a, so yes. many. I can't keep track of all these relationships. You know, it was a bit melodramatic mm. and and quite difficult to follow. I found at times um, the thing. It was strange. I mean, it's very French in its humour. Its sense of humour was really wonderful and played really well but it was strange the way like they wear these beautiful masks and incredible sets incredible costumes done mm-hmm. so well um, and then these one there's some, some really incredibly paced scenes that again I think are really heavily borrowed from Jeunet Pierre Jeunet um, uh, but, but then it, but then it's like straight cinema other times it was mm. just quite dull it was like it was sort of almost perfunctory so um, it wasn't cohesive for me and I think part of it might be to do with the source material it's a 600 page uh, novel and it, so it felt like a highlights reel to me a lot of the time. Yeah. I um, I really enjoyed that kind of maziness about it mm. and I'm terrible at keeping up with films. I can hardly keep up with The Fifth Elements when I've watched it like I'm just rubbish at it but I enjoyed that with this film. I, I thought it really added to it and I also found, um, I just found it really original and quite refreshing mm. like something I hadn't seen before. I was, I was thinking especially with the war scenes at the start, I was amazed by how quickly I was affected by them because, you know, we see so many scenes of violence and especially with, like, the way in which war is often represented, it can get a little bit over-romanticised. But I I think that there's this really um, quite extraordinary scene in which the main character is... Um, blown up and then buried alive with a horse and then uses the horse to kind of keep himself alive. And I thought... Yeah, he used that the was horse to resuscitate himself. Yeah. It was incredible, wasn't and it? And it was really quite poetic and... Um, mm. I don't know, it really stuck with me. I thought there was really some very interesting choices and there was a real heart to that and uh, it sort of surprised me by how affected I was by that. Mm -hmm. I loved how that horse's head comes back later as one of the masks as a prop that he sort of wears. (laughs) I thought that was brilliant. And and a lovely kind of gesture towards the trauma of war. And and I think that they do comment on a lot. In fact, there's all these um, uh, mention of um, men who come back from the war with very severe physical disabilities who are then placed into homelessness and and begging. And it was kind of like, it it did touch upon these very serious topics. Goes into you know drug addiction and that yeah, kind of thing, which yeah, is something yeah. that we still frequently see from mm. people mm. that come back from war. So yeah, it, it is interesting the comment the, on that. Yeah, and kind of told in this kind of French whimsy and yeah, it was comedy. Funny, you know? Like yeah, I was really 
it really um, won me over. It's probably yeah. my favourite film of the three. Yeah. Mm. Do you yeah. think this would work better as a miniseries, though? Because there's Yes, so I had that much, thought. Because yes. there's the section where Pradell, the, the villain of the the film, where he he's war profiteering. I had no idea what was going me on too. in the cemetery. Yes. I had no idea what was happening mm. there. I didn't really care because it was so pretty to look at, but <laughs> I had no idea what was going on where I think had there been a, this sort of established as a miniseries, that narrative could have sort of kind of grown been a bit fleshed more, out. fleshed out. It's funny what our expectations are now given the, the quality of television now. So we kind of, you know, the yeah. Game of Thrones and The Handmaid's Tale and all these um, really epic TV series. So now we, we expect more from our cinema as well. And I and but this 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 film in particular, I totally agree, Stu. Mm. I, I would have liked it to be I would have very much engaged with this over a series. I felt like there was lots of things that I was missing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, but that's about all we have time for tonight. We discussed uh, Boom For Real, which is playing at independent cinemas across Australia and at Acme in Melbourne until August 2nd. We also discussed The Gospel According to Andre and See You Up There, which you can catch also at good local independent cinemas. You've been listening to Sally Christie, Stuart Richards, Flick Ford and myself, Lisa Kovacevic. Uh, the podcast version of the show is edited by Faith Everard. Um, thanks, everybody. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.